and welcome to our podcast, Within the Mist, a hidden place where we walk into the dark and clouded unknown. I am your host, Gary, slithering within this tall grass to entertain and inform you about the likes of cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries. I am joined by my lovely snake charmer and co-host, Goldie Ann. Hello, Goldie Ann. Hi. I'm glad you mentioned Snake Charmer, because I was wondering why you were slithering in the grass, and if that was a new kink or something. (laughs) It's not that kind of podcast. Are you okay over there? I was a little, uh, I was a little thrown for a reply. (laughs) I haven't seen you speechless in a while. (laughs) It happens. Oh, boy. But. With snakes in mind, Goldian, did you know that I once owned a python, but I had to put it up for sale in the newspaper? Really? Yep. A man called me about it and asked, what size is it? I replied, it's quite big. How many feet? He inquired back. None. It's a snake, and they don't have feet. Wow. I have no words. But didn't you have a snake when you were little? Or didn't your dad have a snake? No, but my uh, daughter, uh, she used to have a snake. And she thought she was all brave and cool about it until it got loose. Ooh. Then she didn't want a snake anymore. I don't blame her. Golly. In fact, today's episode involves terrifying encounters with an enormous serpent that terrorized a small town for several months. Unlike my jokes... These stories may be upsetting to some of our listeners. Wait, wait, wait. You don't think your jokes are upsetting to some listeners? No. I, oh, my God. Okay, I continue. Kind of thought they were therapeutic to many. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I guess all the big exhales after you're done is very therapeutic. Thanks. You're welcome. Now, we are storytellers who have gathered information on some of our favorite mysteries to bring to you. We don't attempt to scare our listeners on purpose. Well, maybe just a little. Listener discretion is always advised. The primary source of today's information about the Peninsula Python was reported by Robert Bordner, who collected all of these events in a November 1945 issue of the Atlantic Journal. And I will have a link to that source in our show notes. But first, a word from our sponsor. Welcome back. Peninsula, Ohio was a small town, but it was a town that everyone loved for its peacefulness and its natural beauty. The people of Peninsula didn't have much, but they did have each other. Aww. And that was enough. Oh, boy. I mean, carry on. Thanks. They were a close-knit community where everyone knew everyone else's business and they each had each other's backs when times became tough. In May of 1944, the town was abuzz with the news of World War II ending. People were eagerly awaiting the return of their beloved soldiers and the promise of peace that came with it. However, what should have been a joyous occasion turned into a terrifying mystery when a local farmer discovered strange tracks in his freshly tilled fields. The tracks, which resembled the tire treads of a car, appeared to be made by an animal of some kind, 
The farmer was mystified about what animal could have made such tracks and was not alone. Before long, similar tracks began appearing in the mud at the river's edge, and strange sightings of a giant snake started circulating the town. Ugh, yuck. I take it you're not a fan of snakes? No, not at all. They're the one thing I'm still completely scared of. Because if you don't remember, when we first met, I was afraid of everything. True. Now I'm down to snakes. So what you're saying is, is I need to work on that next? No, you ain't getting nowhere with that. Well, I've, I've kind of discovered that people are, are on the extremes when it comes to snakes. They either really like them and think they're fascinating, or they really dislike them. Yeah. And I'm taking it you're on the dislike side? Yeah. I like to look at them from afar, because they're, they are beautiful and they're fascinating. But the moment I think they're near me, or they can get to me, I'm out. I'm done. Like, on my way to work, sorry, I'm totally going off the track here, but there was a baby snake, little ring ring neck, little black baby snake, and I just, I was almost late to get to work to clock in, because I was too busy hovering over it, watching it. It was so cute. Generally, people, snake charmers, hypnotize snakes. It's not supposed to work the other way around. Well, it was a baby. Okay. Babies are cute. All right. Thankfully, you didn't bring it home. I'm not that crazy. And they get bigger. They do get bigger. Now back to our story in Ohio. The people were skeptical of the snake stories. After all, snakes were not a common sight in Peninsula. But soon, more and more people began to come forward with their own sightings. They reported seeing a giant snake roughly 18 feet long with dark brown and yellow markings along its body. They were adamant that this was no ordinary snake and that it was far scarier and far more menacing. <laughs> the creature had to be content to stick to the fields and riverbanks, but witnesses reported seeing it roosting in the treetops with broken branches and scuffed bark as evidence of its presence. At times, it seemed to be stalking people as if it were hunting them. God. One eyewitness would even report seeing it hissing menacingly as if warning them not to come any closer. The animal appeared to have taken up residence in the town, and no one was sure what the outcome would be. So how big are we talking about here? Oh, trust me, I will be getting into this very long tale very okay. soon. Very long tale. Is that a pun or another dad joke? But I refuse to admit to anything at this point. But what I would say is that the story of the giant snake of Peninsula, Ohio, is still being told, a reminder of the town's brush with the unknown. Even though the creature was gone, it left a legacy of fear and awe that will never be forgotten. So, Goldie Ann, Gary, join us today as we travel within the mist back to my hometown area to explore the legend of the Peninsula Python. Mm. Chapter 1. The Cornfield Clarence Mitchell was tending his cornfield between the Everett Swamp and the disused Ohio Canal on June 8th of 1944. The last few days had been strange. His dogs had refused to set foot in the fields, their manner becoming increasingly agitated. Now Clarence found his behavior somewhat peculiar, but he didn't give it much thought. He hadn't been paying attention when he felt a sudden urge to look up. And there it was, 
an immense snake, leisurely slithering in plain sight across the bare earth in the blazing June heat. It was the biggest one he had ever seen. That's what she said. No, that's what he said. Oh, okay. Never mind. Yeah. Now the farmer was frozen in fear, not wanting to draw the creature's attention. He remained motionless for ten minutes as he watched the python slither into the river, cross it, and climb out on the opposite side. It then continued its course towards the yellow clay hills of Steele's Corner. Judging by the cornfield rows, Clarence could consider the serpent's size. It was as thick around as his leg, and every bit of 15 feet long, or more like 18, with a browning skin spotted along its back. He went over and looked at the tracks, and realized it was as if someone had rolled a spare tire across his field. At the same time, young Mike Bobasick was out as well on that June afternoon. He had the mules hitched to the cultivator working the fields east of the river. Now the cultivator kicked up clumps of dirt as it went and the mules plodded along, their harness jingling. Mike could feel the heat in the air and the mules seemed to sense it too their trot growing just a little slower and more plodding. But they kept on, steadily inching forward, leaving furrows in their wake. Mike glanced up towards the river, and he could make out the shimmer of the water in the light. He squinted, and he saw it, a shape slithering along the bank, heading eastward. It seemed to be a snake. Mike had never seen a snake that size, and he knew it had to be something special. He continued to watch it until it disappeared into the trees. The farmer saw someone ahead of him a few hundred yards down in the field. It was Clarence, and he was walking quickly, heading east, and Mike knew where he was going. Clarence was heading to town to tell the sheriff about the enormous snake. He watched as Clarence trudged away over the low hill and out of sight. At Thanksgiving Hill, a 140-acre farm near Peninsula, Ohio, Robert Bordner first heard of the giant python terrifying the locals. He'd heard reports of giant snakes in the area before, but he had never seen one in person. As a reporter for the Cleveland Press, the story was too good to miss. He quickly returned to his house to grab his camera and pen. He had to verify the story. So, Robert went on an expedition to find the giant python. He wrote a proclamation from the mayor and organized a search party. As they combed the woods, Robert would take notes, interview witnesses, and searched for clues. Robert then wrote the story for the Cleveland Press and the Brecksville News, claiming that the giant python was genuine in every sense, the only matter in doubt being its present whereabouts. I'm out. I'd be gone. I'd go on vacation. You'd leave the town? Yeah. You'd probably leave the state. I would. Wow. For the people in Peninsula, nobody initially paid much attention to the tale, except the women folk. So you, <laughs> Sorry. So you weren't alone, Goldian. Women folk. Yes. Damn women folk! Now they seemed more open to the stories of this great beast. They heard about the giant snake spotted in the woods nearby 
and decided it would be unwise to venture into such places. Without hesitation, they all canceled their plans to go blackberrying and busied themselves with other tasks within the homes. So no blackberry pie for the people that night. That's fine. Chapter 2, The Hen House Bandit. Oh no! Ten days later, Paul and John Soleil fitted a field with a disc and cul-de-packer, which is an agricultural equipment that crushes dirt clods and removes air pockets and presses down small stones. Basically works in preparing the field. It was a small field tucked away in the lonely backcountry of Old Cassidy's Bottom, which was maybe two miles north of Clarence Mitchell's place and only a few miles from Peninsula. They had been preparing for planting for days, and now the field was ready for seeding. They put away their equipment and headed home for lunch. When they returned to the area later that afternoon, they were shocked to discover that something had happened during their absence. There, winding through the open space, was a track, quote, like from an auto tire, wavering from the overgrown swampy canal bed of the river across their virgin seed bed. All their hard work ruined. I don't think a snake trail would ruin the field. All right, fine. But John and Paul were baffled. Who could have made this strange tire track and why? Unsure of what to do, the two men decided to get word to the mayor, John Rich. Mayor Rich dispatched his police chief, Art Huey, and the two assistant chiefs, Dale Hall and Dud Watson, to investigate the strange tracks. After arriving at the scene, the men walked around the area, searching for clues. After a few minutes, a troubling discovery was made. Nothing but a mighty big snake could have made that track, he said officially. All right, Captain Obvious. Well, two days later, the fire station siren sounded off its shrill alert. It was coming from Roy Vaughn's house east of the river. By the time the volunteers arrived, everyone was housed up tight inside. Mrs. Vaughn had spotted the snake. So when does this take place? What year? 1944. Okay. So right at the end of World War II. Okay. The men met the middle-aged woman outside with a frightened look about her. She immediately waved them on to follow her to the back of the home where the chicken coop was housed. I was up on the second floor of my hen house and looked out into the yard and back, she said. She pointed to the fence that encircled them. A big snake was trying to get through the woven wire fence, but he had a lump in him, big as a basket and the lump wouldn't go through the fence. He reared up and climbed right over the top of that wire fence, three and a half feet high. The last few feet of him fell over. Plop, a big plop on the far side, and then he went down the ravine. Mrs. Vaughn was no hysteric. There was dirt on the fence wire and the surrounding weeds were broken flat where she pointed. Worst of all, one of the chickens kept in the hen house was gone. 
I think we know what was the lump. Get in my belly! Mm. <laughs> the Peninsula Python became an indisputable reality for those in attendance. Huey Waverly checked the length of the snake's body as Mrs. Vaughn had reported seeing it extending beside the fence. It measured 19 feet. This settled it for everyone there. Settled it or unsettled it? <laughs> I think some of the people found it very unsettling. I do. Mm -hmm. Mayor Rich declared a mobilization of the population and set Sunday as the day for hunting the python. Both the Cleveland Press and the Akron Beacon Journal praised the proclamation. Chapter 3 Circus and Carnivals <sighs> Great. It became apparent to the people of Peninsula that this was clearly not a native snake species to Ohio. In all, there are 25 species of snakes in the area, with the largest being the black rat snake, and it only able to grow to be about 4 to 6 feet long. Snakes of the reported size here would only be able to exist in the southern hemisphere within the warmer climates. Among these behemoths is the southern African rock python, able to reach lengths of 19 feet. The central African rock python measures 24 feet. The green anaconda, which surpasses that, grows to 28 feet. And the monster of them all is the reticulated python that can exceed 32 feet in length. We've seen one of those. Here in Florida, yes. There yes. You have seen one in captivity. And what was her name? I don't know. It was Goldie. Oh, You yeah. don't remember? How do you forget that? It's my name. Well, I never think of you as a snake, babe. Oh, well, that's good. A lot of people do. <laughs> Regardless, none of these snakes are found in northern Ohio. So, how did a monster like the one in Cuyahoga Valley get there? Speculations abounded as to how the snake had made its way to Peninsula. Before that month, a circus had been in Akron, Ohio, and their sideshows did have many serpents of a similar size. It was hypothesized that one of these snakes could have escaped and the circus would have wanted to kept this quiet to avoid significant financial damages. After all, buying a new snake was much cheaper than paying an expensive fee. Giant snakes of the time cost only $10 per foot. The circus was tracked down, but they professed innocence. Two years ago, it was remembered that a caravan of carnival trucks had taken an unexpected detour through the valley. One of the vehicles careened wildly on Hammond's Corner Hill and eventually ended up wrecked among the tombstones in Pleasant Valley Cemetery. The driver was killed and the contents were strewn about. Perhaps there was a snake and that is how it arrived in their area. There was also the notion that a person in nearby Cleveland owned a snake as an exotic pet Perhaps it had escaped or grew to become unmanageable and was released into the wild to forage for itself. Neither was out of the realm of possibilities. That's how Florida got their snake population in the Everglades. Two snakes make a bunch of baby snakes. Well, it is no secret that exotic pet ownership has risen in recent years in the United States, Cleveland being no exception. 
Over 15,000 alien species are estimated to be kept as pets in the United States, with a portion of this number could be found in the Cleveland area. In addition, they often have special dietary needs that can be more difficult to meet and may require more secure housing than a typical pet owner can provide. If these needs are unmet, the exotic pet may escape or become a public safety hazard. In the case of the Peninsula Python, the scenario was that maybe it was released into the wild by the pet owner who either became overwhelmed or could not provide the proper environment. Although this situation is possible, it is impossible to know for sure without further investigation. Regardless of how the snake arrived in their town, Fletcher Reynolds, the director of the Cleveland Zoo, begged for the reptile's life. He is harmless unless frightened or cornered. He can strike only about one-third of his length, so stay ten feet away from him and he can't reach you. But don't get too close. He has teeth like a dog's and can cut someone up. The teeth grab when he strikes and when he pulls the victim to him, he throws loops after loops around it. It is only after he gets his tail in the loop that he can tighten enough to kill. Mr. Reynolds also advised that anyone finding the snake should remain quiet. Don't scare him. Telephone the location to the zoo and wait to show me. I will be there in less than 30 minutes. I can easily take him alive. In 30 minutes, he's going to be back across in the river. That dude needs to step up his game. Well, then maybe someone closer is going to have to catch it. There you go. The snake was on everyone's mind by then. Radio newscasters were even giving regular bulletins. The United Press and Associated Press were covering developments out of Akron, and newspapers all over Ohio had put the story on their front pages. The snake had become an obsession, and people couldn't stop talking about it. The Columbus Zoo offered $500 for the mysterious snake, which is a lot of money back in the 1940s. Yeah. Soon, a variety of people started showing up in town, hoping to investigate and make an offer for the creature. These included carnival workers, hunters, snake experts, and even some people who just thought it would be fun to participate in the action. <laughs> the obsession with capturing the snake was rampant in the small town. Scotty's Bar, Stebbins Grocery, Sovacool's Store, Conjure's Soda Fountain Shop, and Earl Duffy's Ganyard's Barber Shop were all buzzing with activity as people discovered various schemes to apprehend the elusive creature. There was no ends of opinions being thrown about left and right, but no one seemed to have a surefire plan for capturing the snake. Here are some of my favorite ideas. Uh-oh. Dud Watson contrived a large box with an eight-inch hole for entry. He would bait it with a hen, and according to him, the snake will go in, gobble the hen, and be trapped by his breakfast. So he was actually not bad idea. It I mean, kind of worked on the uh, hen house uh, previously yeah. seen. Pernell Andrews toted a clothesline prop. He said he would let it strike at the pole and then push it down his gullet so he couldn't coil. Then he would have him at his Murphy. Oh my god! No! 
So he was going to push a pole down the snake's throat so oh he couldn't God. curl. Yeah, like that wouldn't kill him. Mm. J.H. Bauer, the station agent, depended on a more charming effects of music. <laughs> snakes love music. A couple of the boys and I used it on hundreds in West Virginia. We would go along the creek, one sawing on the fiddle, the other wanging on the banjo, and me picking them off with my 22. Ow. Yeah, let's keep this one out of it. Mm. How about Pierce Monroe Metcalf, an expert frog hunter, who explained the sneak snatch method. Sneak snatch. According to him, you would quickly throw a leg loop over him and start steering. <laughs> like it is not, you could probably ride him in the town bareback. Yeah! <laughs> uh, let's, I would like to see him try that. Ray Hall, a civilian defense safety chief, liked the stem winder way, in which all you have to do is keep a snake from coiling. He had used it plenty of times on big black snakes, in which you grab them by the tail like an old model T Ford and crank. It bewilders them. So he was going to grab it by its tail and basically keep swinging it so that it couldn't curl around on him. But it could turn around and bite him. According to him, he wouldn't be able to because he'd be swinging it around. Okay. 18 feet. Not sure how much that would pretty, weigh. Yeah, that's pretty heavy. Now, Dale, his brother, advocated self-service. According to him, all he had to do is grab its tail, and when it strikes, just shove his tail down his throat. He'll swallow himself. Oh, my God. Are these people trying to kill him or collect him? I don't think these people were... 100% serious on trying any of these methods. It kind of kind of became a, a joke or a tall tale, everyone trying to outdo each other with how they would catch it. Whoever had the best story won. Yeah, well. Chapter 4, Men with Guns. Oh, here we go. No, always. Mayor Rich was getting anxious at the sight of all the guns people were bringing in town for the hunt. He had to issue another proclamation. Only his police and the posse leaders would be allowed to carry firearms with a limit of one gun per posse. He was worried that someone would shoot themselves or someone else in their eagerness to find the snake. That's how they start. Well, on Sunday of June 25th, it was beautiful. The bells from the church rang as people came to worship. And meanwhile, Chief Huey gathered an eclectic mix of men, boys, guns, and various devices in front of the barbershop. He then organized them into teams and sent them out on assignments. At that moment, two militia groups appeared on the bridge leading into town, bayonets drawn and charging towards them. Unaware of the snake hunt, Captain William E. Moore stated that they had camped on Brewery Hill for training the night prior and were using the town on a simulated military mission. Mm -mm. The timing of the hunt and the training operation was just a terrifying, hilarious coincidence. Okay, as long as it was funny and no one got hurt. No one got hurt, but I'm sure a lot of people were shocked at seeing the army come charging down just as they were about to go on a snake hunt. <laughs> Now, once the dust settled from the conflict with the militia, a caravan of spectators, including newspaper reporters, motion picture cameramen, and amateur photographers could be seen on the back roads and river bottoms, all of them searching for any sign of the creature. 
Near the end of church services, there would be a loud wail from the town hall that pierced the air. This sound was a prearranged signal indicating that West Richfield's telephone operator had a call informing her of the varmint's location. The chase was on. <laughs> the location was on Hudson Road, past the east side of Fred Kelly's store, and the mayor jotted down some quick directions on scrap paper and rushed towards the scene with his team of men. The worshippers of church hurriedly forced open the entrance to the church and scrambled into their cars, creating a cloud of dust as they sped up the hills. They were closer to the location of the snake, and they had a head start on the hunters. The panic-inducing siren caused the entire township to pour out of the village and up Kelly Hill. Then, a posse of men rushed from the woods on the south side of town. They hopped onto the running boards of cars and sped down Hudson Road, armed with knives and clubs. Their wild presence only furthered the chaos. The drivers had such a thirst for blood that they abandoned their vehicles in the middle of the streets, doors wide open. Sunday pants were ensnared in barbed wire and shrubs as city dwellers crawled up mounds of poison ivy on all fours. Women tattered their white dresses by sinking into the muddy ditches. Men slid down ravines or rolled into the creek, tearing off patches of skin from their bodies. All in the sake of the snake hunt. Under the bright rays of the June sun, Mayor Rich followed the sound through dense shrubbery and tall weeds. The hunters moved in circles with no apparent target. It was a false alarm. Yet it took an hour to finally stop the search amidst the alfalfa and timothy fields. Oh gosh. Worse, for days, journalists, writers, scribblers, and radio personalities found the events highly amusing. They made fun of Peninsula for days afterwards. The townspeople were divided into two factions. The non-believers, who thought that their public image had been severely tarnished and claimed property values had plummeted, and the second group, the true believers, whose pride was wounded by having their honesty questioned. In response, the true believers receded their snake hunting into secrecy. It won't be funny if that snake gets a child next. The jokers would be first to holler, Mayor Rich warned. The hoax deceived the believers, especially when Ganyard, a barber and renowned fox hunter, revealed that his posse members had almost caught the creature they were searching for before being called away. The hunt for the Peninsula Python had transformed. A few replaced the many, and there would be no more mass hunts. There was no reason to blow the siren anymore nor any point in giving information to the newspapers until they brought back proof of a python dead. These men intended to kill the snake, and they sought proof to silence those that doubted their ability to do so. And so, a team of python hunters was created. Police Chief R. Huey was in charge. Earl Ganyard was the best tracker, was always at the ready. Dale and Ray Hall and Dud Watson were also assigned to back them up. 
All of the men kept their automobiles loaded with firearms, ensuring that they would always be prepared at a moment's notice. The operators of the local townships were all coordinated to send the news to the West Richfield telephone station swiftly. Huey and Gander always ensured that one of them was available for the call, day or night. They aimed to reach the area before the scared reptile spread too far. Chapter 5 The Cowfields Posse it had only been two days after the disaster on Sunday when the new team was put to the test. This trial occurred close to Boston Mills, beside the river two miles north of Peninsula. On Tuesday morning, a Mrs. Pauline Hopko took her pail and headed down the canal to milk her cows in the nearby pasture. The cows were not cooperating, so she had to tie them to a fence before beginning. Suddenly, there was a loud noise from across the river. Her bovine companions immediately jerked away from their ties and bolted off, leaving poor Mrs. Hopko alone with her milk pail. When she looked over at the other side of the river, she saw the snake with a head as big as a man coming down out of the branches of a willow tree. Her dogs cowered fearfully under her skirts so much that they almost knocked her over. <laughs> Must have been one of our dogs. Yeah, I could definitely see Sam cowering that much and being in the way. Bobby Pollard cycled across the towpath nearby, and the frightened milkmaid sent him off to call the police while she rounded up the cows and completed the milking. Instead of calling Bobby being a boy, returned with a gang of other boys to check out the snake. <sighs> sure enough, they spotted it in a nearby tree across the river. It was hours later that the official snake hunting team finally arrived. They examined the two trees and saw broken branches, freshly scuffed bark, and the tracks on the ground. But their search failed due to the tall weeds, tall vines, and crammed debris on the river bottom. In another two days, Ernest Raymond would take out his scythe to cut grass along the fence row four miles up on Brandywine Creek. At some point, as he was cutting the grass, he spotted a root that seemed out of place in the Timothy field. When he looked closer, however, the root moved. It was a coiled snake with its head raised and looking around. Yuck. I ran to the house for my shotgun and Ray Thompson, my son-in-law. When we came back, it was still there, but he lowered his head before I could shoot. We could see the deep grass waving as he slithered off. Okay, not to stop you. Go ahead. But weren't you born and raised in Ohio? Yes, I am from a town called Maslin, Ohio, which is about an hour south of Akron, okay. which is about an hour south of Peninsula. Okay. So this my... happened two hours away from where I grew up. Okay, my next question is, why does this guy from Ohio all of a sudden have a southern accent? He has a 1940s accent. <laughs> okay. That's going to be my story, and I'm going to stick to it. Okay. We all don't sound like me. Okay. Now, getting back to the posse, 
The posse arrived to the site and they were presented with an area of flattened grass in the field. It didn't take long for news to spread and soon Ray Mitten from the Akron Beacon Journal was scouring Macedonia Township from up high in an airplane to try and locate the serpent. Another two days passed and Mrs. Ralph Griffin went to the back door of her house and shouted for George. She described seeing something the height of a man where the trail connected with the woods in her backyard. At first, she thought it was a person wearing a white shirt, but upon closer inspection, she realized that it was the Peninsula Python reared up and looking around with its bright white throat exposed. Again, search party was organized, but they all came up empty-handed. According to the accounts, the serpent returned to the Cuyahoga River bottomland near Brandywine, where Mrs. Catherine Boratuck of Boston Mills was the next witness. She went out back of her house to throw some trash in the river, and just as she turned to come back in, there was a crash in the butternut tree overhead. She turned as the big snake fell with a thump not ten feet from her. Guess what happened next, Goldian? The posse came and they couldn't find it. The posse came and they couldn't find it. <laughs> okay. The posse noticed some broken branches dangling 30 feet from the ground of the butternut tree, their leaves still green and thick as someone's wrist. Another trail was also found leading to the river and leading the Peninsula Python out of the story forever on. Ah, they never saw it again? Chapter 6, Worldwide Fame So, Golian, by this point, the legend of the Peninsula Python had spread throughout the globe. The young lads from nearby villages fighting on the front lines read about it in foreign newspapers while stationed in Europe, or they heard rumors of its existence from the word of mouth. Letters poured in from Iceland, England, Normandy beachheads, Italy, North Africa, India, ships stationed at sea or based in the Pacific Naval Fleet. The snake that once only roamed within the small peninsula of Ohio was now known worldwide. Carl Scobie, hailing from Idaho Falls, Idaho, had traveled 2,000 miles to participate in the hunt for the varmint. For 25 years, he had been employed as an expert in the oil fields of Texas and Mexico, followed by L.A. He was known for breeding rattlesnakes and then selling them to a Michigan businessman who used them to create anti-venom serum. Carl had also been called in as an expert witness when there was a trial for a man who killed his wife by putting her foot into a box of rattlers. A few years ago, when a carnival python had escaped at Long Beach, the police contacted him, where he tracked down the 28-foot reptile under a wharf. But after reading about the Peninsula Python, he boarded the first available train. Though he hadn't seen his parents in years, Carl could locate his Aunt Abby Lee on the farm she and his Uncle Park had occupied for over a half of a century. Aunt Abby welcomed the unknown person into her home. She had been in the middle of planning a picnic that would be attended by his parents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and former acquaintances the following day. Without hesitation, 
she planned to surprise the relatives and provided her nephew with a bed to rest. The following day, 60 guests arrived at Aunt Abby's home for the gathering. A balding man was introduced as Mr. Smith. Nobody was familiar with him or recognized him. Charles Scobie, the hostess's father, admitted to feeling strange, but he couldn't identify the issue until he realized who their guest of honor was. He was utterly taken aback. Everyone was pleased to become reacquainted with him, especially after learning his plans to capture the Peninsula Python. Equipped with a blanket, Carl Scobie took off into the field searching for the gigantic snake. He knew that catching it would be as simple as letting the snake strike at the blanket, then wrapping it around its head until it was subdued. This python weighed about 250 pounds, so Carl would have gathered six people to carry it out like timber. Unfortunately, after weeks of searching, he returned home to Idaho without his peninsula python as a prize in September. It seemed that the python was gone for good. Well, there you go. Chapter 7, Waiting for its Return. There was some guy on a unicycle. What? <laughs> I have no idea where that image is going to fit in with this story. <laughs> Lone tire track. I did not make the connection. Okay, thanks. Well done. I've got jokes. Do you? Now, by autumn, the snake was only reported a few times. Hunters were never fast enough to spot it or shoot it, and when it was frightened, it moved too quickly for anyone to track it. When the first big frost hit, all signs of the snake vanished. The posse scanned the skies for circling buzzards that would lead them straight to where the snake must lay dead, hoping that the cold would have killed it. But still, no vultures appeared. They figured it must have hibernated in one of the many spots beneath large tree roots along the riverbanks. It's been years since the last sighting of this humongous snake, and the locals are still eagerly awaiting its return. The local library has a mural to commemorate the events of the summer, and for a period of a few years there was even a Peninsula Python Day that included a giant python construct that paraded down the streets that took almost 20 people to move. <laughs> all in all, the Peninsula Python left its mark on the small town. So in closing, Goldie Ann, what are your thoughts? Uh, let's see, thoughts. Yeah, that's those things that you have in your head. So you think it was real? I'm asking your thoughts. Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's possible. You know, because well, anything's I mean, that's possible. possible. Unicorns are possible. That's right. But I mean, I don't see why it's not real. But where did it go? Could be a collector found it. It could be that it died, and out there somewhere are some giant uh, snake bones. <laughs> snake bones. For yeah. me. Opinions vary regarding the Peninsula Python, but it does resemble how many other folklores happen where an actual event is plausible, but then the legend begins to grow and grow with each retelling. 
Within the forest of the Cuyahoga Valley, there remains a sense of unease, as though the monstrous serpent could drop down from the overhead branches at any time. People of today disregard the creature as folklore, but its effects have added a little mystery to the area and the lives of the citizens. It was unlike anything they had ever experienced before or since. If the story is true, they lived through something unique to any other town in Ohio. If it was all a hoax, it had provided entertainment to tell stories of the 18-foot monster at campfires years afterwards. Do you imagine that campfire story sitting out in the middle of the woods? I could see me doing it. I would definitely tell this story around a campfire. Oh, yeah. Every rustling sound people heard for the rest of the night. So should, I'd be back at a hotel. So should you see the cornstalks rustle when out in Ohio, take a moment to look more closely for an 18-foot-long snake in the cornfields. You might be on your way to encountering the Peninsula Python. <laughs> now, before we go, I want to remind everyone that we are on social media and would love to hear your stories and opinions about the Peninsula Python. Do you believe that a snake that large could survive in Ohio? You can reach us on our Facebook page, Within the Mist Podcast. We are also on Instagram. Plus, we have an email at withinthemistpodcast at gmail.com for any of you who would like to share your stories. We hope you enjoyed our tale of the Peninsula Python and will come again for another episode. Until then, remain constantly curious and goodbye. Bye, guys.